I'm going to launch us into uh, the final part. We're going to read the closing, uh, the closing verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3 in just a few moments. Uh, before we hop into it, though, I do want to make uh, just a couple of uh, uh, observations and, some, and tell you about a few books that are really important uh, if you're going to just venture into studying the book of Revelation. The first one is this. It's by Eugene Peterson. Um, many of those close to me know that I do not take this lightly when I say when I talk about books because I read a lot of stuff and I wouldn't throw it all out there. But Eugene Peterson, he wrote a book called Reverse Thunder, The Revelation of John and the Praying Imagination. If you want to dive into Revelation a little bit more from a, a more of a creative standpoint and understanding this book is for you, um, I have absolutely loved this book. I think I've shed more tears and that's very hard for me to do uh, while reading this book. It's, it captures stuff that I just don't know if any other human being can capture like Eugene Peterson. And so grab hold of that, but I've paired it with a proper commentary. Uh, it's a commentary that I've really fallen in love with. It's called Revelation by Eugene Boring. It is not a boring commentary, but uh, his last name is Boring. And I love the way that he writes. I love the information that's in here. I love the direction that he takes and some of the, uh, some of the thoughts that he brings in this. And so these are two great resources for you um, if you are going to dive into the book of Revelation. I will say this. If you are somebody who's brand new to faith, um, you've really just started your journey with Jesus, I would caution you uh, with the book of Revelation as well. Uh, maybe start in a different place of the Bible, but be here, because um, Revelation can be daunting. Um, and uh, there can be some stuff that's like, what are you talking about? We're going to get to that in this series, but I would just, word of caution for those of you who are like, yes, let's go, Revelation, let's get into it. It's like, no, maybe just hold your roll. Like, John, start there. And so... Um, We'll be good. You excited you came to church today? All right. Second Peter chapter three, verses 10 through to 18. Says this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it's clear of what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. As you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on this promise, based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Come on, that's good news, somebody. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Also regard, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you According to the wisdom given to him, he speaks about these things in all his letters. And there are some things that are hard to understand in them. The untaught and the un unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they do with the rest of scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away, led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position but you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And the church said, amen. amen. Today, as we continue on in our series, you are here. And we begin our last mini-series called, that we're calling War Horses. I want to speak to you from this subject right here. Pastor, poet, and theologian. Pastor, poet, and theologian. As we create the framework for exploring the subject of the end of days. Will you pray with me just one more time this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. It's alive, it's active, it's powerful, and has the ability to transform who we are. So we give you our mind, we give you our hearts, we give you our attention right now. 
God, we give you our attention right now. There is not anything else in the world more important than your word right now in this moment. And so we block out the distractions and we say, have your way in our lives. God, I pray your presence would move in this room right now. God, illuminate your word for us in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, and everybody shouted. Amen. Um, I used to fake being sick in high school. <laughs> Come on, show, where are all the rebels in the room? Rebels at, how many of you fake? Okay, cool. Like, this is a place of safety, all right? You can, you can talk about it. My mom's in here, so she just found out something, so that was great. Um, but I, there, there are days I, I faked, uh, I faked um, being sick in, in high school, and I'll tell you why, because uh, I love movies, and one of the movies that I would watch every single time that I faked being sick at home and stayed home was the movie Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Come on, can I get a witness in church today? And I, I don't know about you, but I was always moved to tears in that movie. You know the last part where Arnold Schwarzenegger's being lowered down in the lava and he puts his thumb up, right? Like the tears are weeping. Like I'm, it was one of the best movies ever. I love that movie. But one of the things that always caught me in that movie was all like the revelatory end of times, end of the world type of stuff in that movie. How many of you know what I'm talking about? How many of you have seen a movie or read a novel recently or in the past where it speaks to this issue of the end of days? Show, show of hands. How many of you have seen stuff like this, right? And I don't know about you, but I've come to realize how fascinated we are as a culture and as a society with end time themes and concepts. Movie after movie, novel after novel, caught up with the end of the world from machines and asteroids, Aerosmith and aliens, earthquakes, tsunamis, cataclysmic weather events, the end of the world has fascinated humanity as a whole for generations. But this is not a new thing. First century society was enamored with the end of all things just as we are today. And not just from a religious point of view. See, this subject matter has been the genesis of great debates from the science community to the academic community to the political community to the religious community. All of them with different views and reasonings and applications for the subject concerning the end of days. I just saw this week, maybe you saw this in the news, but apparently we sent a rocket into space and the sole purpose of this rocket was to smash it into an asteroid. Only a guy can come up with that. <laughs> That was its sole purpose. And the reason that we were doing this was to make sure that we could be removed from the crisis of our planet being hit by an asteroid. That was, that was the, that, so it's, it's happening right now. People are thinking about these things. And come on, if we're honest about it, many of us have been caught up more with fear than anything else concerning this issue, right? Can we be honest in church today? Now, Obviously, we're going to be looking at all of this information over the next few months from a biblical perspective and Christian in theme. There's a lot to discover on this subject, and in no way for the next several weeks will we be able to discover it all or really get too deep. But there's some really important truths, themes, and instructions that we find, especially in the book of Revelation, that are really important for us to grapple with and come to an understanding of. Here's my goal. I want you to write this down. Everybody looking at me. Here's the goal of these next few weeks and, and the months as we head into the conclusion of this series and, and move into December. Here's my goal. My goal is to help us all follow up with Jesus more or for the first time. 
That's our goal. And I actually believe the book of Revelation helps us do that. It helps us fall in love once again with the beauty and the majesty of our creator. Now in Eugene Boring's commentary on Revelation, we find some very clear and important definitions for our journey over the next few months. And I wanna read these definitions. We're gonna get academic for a second. Is that all right with everybody? All right, everybody, everybody sit up and get your notebooks out, proper students, okay? I need to spend the next few minutes with some academic terminology and then we'll get to the, we'll get to the practical application, all right? Apocalyptic, Eugene Boring writes, not all scholars use the terminology in the same way, but it has proven helpful to separate the answer to the question, what is apocalyptic, into three subcategories. Apocalyptic as a literary genre, apocalyptic as a social movement, and apocalyptic as a particular kind of thought. This is what Boring would go on to say. He would say, since understanding the message of Revelation is our primary concern, he will concentrate, I, he says, I will concentrate on apocalyptic as the kind of thought represented in Revelation. So we're working through a thought process here, but there's another piece of the puzzle that's very important for us to put into its place. When it comes to engaging with the apocalyptic thought literature, doctrine and theology that we find in Revelation. Connected to our consideration of apocalyptic thought, there is another term for us to grab a hold of, and it's this term right here, eschatology eschatology. Boring writes this concerning eschatology. He says, apocalyptic is a particular kind of, a particular kind of eschatology, which in turn is a particular understanding of this doctrine right here, the doctrine of providence. Eschatology comes from the Greek word meaning end. Eschatological thought goes beyond the general affirmation of the doctrine of providence which is God guiding history to a more specific statement. I love this statement right here. God guiding history to its final goal. So God's not just guiding history, God's guiding history to its final goal. You're with me today. And this is important, we'll discover why in just a few moments. Providence is a big deal when it comes to interpreting the Bible, but especially where apocalyptic literature and language is being used. We see this language and thought being used by Peter in his letters, Paul in his letters, Jesus throughout his ministry. We would see it in the Old Testament like place, in places like Daniel and Ezekiel, and of course our final discourse found in the book of Revelation written by John on the island Patmos. The term providence is brought to us from the Greek and it consists of two Latin words, pro, which means before, and video, which means see. This constitutes as being able to see what is before one or to be looking out ahead. Once again, we, I borrow this from Eugene Boring. Now, according to Augustus Hopkins Strong Systematic Theology, providence is that continuous agency of God by which he makes all the events of the physical and moral universe fulfill the original design with which he created. In other words, it is God doing what he said he was going to do. He's guiding history. To believe in the providence of God, Boring goes on to say, is to believe that not only our individual lives, but history as a whole is under the sovereignty of one who is looking out ahead. That someone is in the driver's seat of history. The faith expressed in the doctrine of providence might be summed up in the words, God is guiding history to its end. 
So both terms that we've just looked at, apocalyptic and eschatology, can be considered a part of a larger understanding of this doctrine of providence. And the reason that understanding these terms are important is because they help us frame our understanding and our attitudes when approaching the subject matter. To be informed of our eschatology is to be confronted with both the goodness and grandeur of God's power and sovereignty. And it's, under, and it's important to understand that he has an overarching plan even when it seems like he's not involved in our personal lives. Come on, show of hands. How many of you have been at one moment or another scared of this idea of revelation? Even right now, the artwork on the wall is freaking your mind out. But the book of Revelation is not meant to elicit a fear of the end, but rather an awe and a reverence of the God who institutes it. And so for some of us who may have a, a, a greater church background, I'm probably going to poke at some things during this series that are going to cause you to think a little bit. For others of us who are very new to our faith, I might awaken something in you that causes you to be curious and inquisitive. But I hope for all of us as we study this amazing book, this amazing letter known as Revelation, I pray that we would come alive to who God is, that we'd come alive to his beauty and majesty and authority, that we'd come alive to his word, and that we would leave here every single week changed because of what he has included us in. My kids go to school. Um, that was a weird place to pause. My kid, <laughs> just so everyone knows. Uh, my kids go to school every day. I, I get up in the morning with them and we pack lunches, breakfast, off into the car, and we race off and, and get them to school. And when they get out of my car in the line, they go off and, and they're about their day. They're hanging out, they're doing things. I don't necessarily know who they're, I don't know where they're sitting. Um, I don't know what's happening at lunch. But how many of you would agree with me that my kids, so to speak, they're involved in a different world while they're away from me? And I go away, and as their mom and their dad, how many of you would agree with me? I'm not involved in their life that's happening at school right now. Right? They're, being, they're, being, they're set apart to, to engage in this place, and they're growing, and they're building, and they're learning things. And while that's happening, mom and dad are in a different place orchestrating our overall plan for our family. Mom and dad are working and we're building because we have a plan and a purpose, an overarching plan and purpose for our family life. And so that's, if I can bring any sort of illustration to all of us, that's what's going on right now, is that God is literally preparing a place for us. The Bible tells us he's interceding for us. The Bible tells us that he's anticipating, uh, he's anticipating, uh, but until he comes again, we are set at work to proclaim the gospel and to preach the good news and that there's some stuff happening in this world while we are in our worldly tents. And sometimes he's intricately involved with it and he's moving things and he's fashioning things. And sometimes if we're not careful, we can believe he's not involved at all because we don't feel him. But understanding Revelation is helping us understand that there's two stories going on. There's a bigger overarching story and then there's a smaller story, our lives. And I just want to set some of us free today. God's main story isn't about us. It's about him. And here's where we get tripped up is when we reverse the stories and we think God's sole purpose and story and arc of it all is about you and I. We are included in a larger story. So to be informed of our eschatology is to be confronted with the truth of God's larger story and narrative. And when we understand this, it helps us come to a place of rest and worship. Come on church, are you with me this morning? 
Now, a team of scholars who are part of a society of biblical literature at the University of Notre Dame came together to develop a definition of apocalyptic thought. Led by a professor named John J. Collins, he would write concerning the issue in his book, Apocalypse. And he says this, Apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, John in this case, disclosing a transcendent reality which is both temporal insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world. A lot of big words, what is he saying? That there's a lot going on that we can't necessarily put our minds to. There is a transcendent reality to our faith. Come on, somebody. That eternity is a very real thing, and we get glimpses of it in the here and now. This definition combined thought from a collection of works, including Jewish, Christian, Greco-Roman apocalypses. And this is important to note because it helps us understand that this line of thought, this, this language and understanding is more widespread and is not just isolated to a small population of Christians. You know the ones that we freak out about that have signs and they're usually telling us we're going to hell. Remember those? Yeah. Come on, how many of you at one point or another when people talk about Revelation, you go, oh great, here we go, going into crazy land. <laughs> and man, that frustrates me. I hate it. I've gotten, two, I've gotten two different kickbacks when it comes to, like, somebody asked me, hey, so you really, we're going to be talking Revelation. Like, really, we're going to go there. And then their eyebrow raises going like, are we going off the deep end? And then the other is people who legitimately are like, man, I'm, I'm really nervous about this series. And that's why some of you, when this art was thrown up, you're like, see, we're going crazy. There it is. Lightning bolts, destruction, it's all over. Now Meredith just put together killer artwork. It was awesome. Come on. So this section that Peter writes to us, it creates the launching pad to engage in the discovery of this fundamental work of eschatology and apocalyptic thought. So the book of Revelation, written by John, somewhere around 81 to 96, this letter was greatly important to his readers. According to tradition, the book of Revelation was written from imprisonment on the island Patmos as Emperor Titus Flavius Domitian set the apostle there to exile. This would be the most agreed upon information we have concerning the location and time of authorship. Now we enlist the help of another author for better understanding and greater insight into who the apostle John was. Eugene Peterson, his book Reverse Thunder presents John as a multifaceted character used by God to bring the daunting but significant work of revelation. He submits to us that John is this, at the genesis of this work, he is a theologian, he is a pastor, and he's a poet. Write that down because that's gonna be important for our journey. He is a theologian, he is a pastor, and he's a poet. He goes on to write this beautiful summation of this idea. Listen to what Eugene Peterson writes. He says, a theologian takes God seriously as subject and not as object and makes it a life's work to think and talk of God in order to develop knowledge and understanding of God in his being and work. A poet takes words seriously as images that connect the visible and the invisible and becomes custodian of their skillful and accurate usage. 
A pastor takes actual persons seriously as children of God and faithfully listens to and speaks with them in the conviction that their life of faith in God is the centrality to which all else is peripheral. The three ministries don't always converge in a single person. When they do, the results are impressive. Because John was so thoroughly integrated, the work of theologian, poet, and pastor, we have a brilliantly conceived and endlessly useful document, the Revelation. Pastor, poet, theologian. And so it's with this statement that I wanna use as the framework for the next few months as we explore this beautiful letter from the perspective of John as theologian, as pastor, and as poet. Three truths that we must understand. Okay, now the practical part. Where are my practical people in the house? All right, practical part, here we go. Three things you need to understand, need your help today, come on, shout number one. Here's the first thing that we need to understand. The work of Revelation is theological, helping us know God. Come on, it's theological, helping us know God. Revelation chapter one, verses one to three says this. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Whatever he saw, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. These are the opening words of the book of Revelation. And it tells us that we are blessed when we open it. We are blessed when we hear it. This is a letter that is to be read to the community of faith. And for some of us in here today, you're brand new. This is your first time in church before. You don't even really, like, you're kicking the tires on faith. You haven't said yes to Jesus. And this is going to engage your mind and your heart as we're going to work to help us know God. But some of us in here today, we call ourselves believers. We have been following Jesus and express goals to help us understand and know who God is more. Why is this important? Well, because theology's taken a bad rap lately, hasn't it? It's come at a time when the rigidity of truth is becoming increasingly unpopular and devalued. Where any truth, my truth, your truth, random truth takes authority. Can I just tell you today that there isn't random truth, there isn't my truth, you don't get a truth. Jesus made the truth, he is the truth. <laughs> and we must understand that the truth of God is not fluid. Mono, let's say it again. The truth of God is not fluid. We do not get to form and fashion him in a way that we see fit. Basic definition, and I quote, of theology is the study of God as he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and in Scripture. This is really important. Let's say it again. As he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and Scripture. Recipients of both Peter and John's letters were living in a very difficult setting and circumstances. The political climate was aggressive and persecutory. They found themselves mostly impoverished and on the fringe of society. They were castaways and cast outs, living under the everyday pressure of fear of losing their life for the sake of their beliefs, especially in the case of John's readers. These faith-filled but domestically oppressed people needed more than ever to understand who God was and is. Here's the problem with circumstance. I want you to hear this today. We tend to allow it to shape who God is and who we believe he should be. 
Many of us fall prey to this trap. Isn't it interesting that we will allow circumstance and situation to cause us to shape God in such a way that is in relationship to our circumstance and situation, only to be frustrated by the fact that how we shaped him isn't who he actually is, and then we get mad at him for not being the person that we said that he was. Come on, you ever been there before? You're all mad at God, and he's like, you're the one who said I was this way. Come on, can we talk in church today? It's amazing how many times we get frustrated at God because he's not who we said he was according to my situation. He's like, I don't want, I don't want you to tell me who I am. I told you who I am. So your circumstance and your situation, my circumstance and situation, it needs to be mediated through the truth of who God is, not mediated as who I want him to be in the midst of my circumstance and situation. See, I want God to take away my situation. He wants to walk with me in my situation. Isn't it interesting that we want God to take over every aspect of our life except our ability to decide whether we want to follow him or not? That went over some of our heads maybe. Let's try it slower. <laughs> we, want, we, want, we don't want autonomy and authority when it comes to God, take away this in my life, do this, shift this. I want you to just take over, do everything. But when it comes to me deciding to follow you or not, I want autonomy and authority. And so theology helps us understand who God is. So the book of Revelation helps us with theology. It's really important to understanding who God is, especially as we approach the end of things. Now, let me just say this right out the gate. I'm gonna spend very little amounts of time trying to decipher when Jesus is coming back. That's a, that's a lesson in futility. Come on. The Bible tells us Jesus said it. He says, listen, you guys, it's, it's not for you to know the times and the dates and the moments that God has set by his authority. So I'm not gonna try to, to convince us or work through arguments as to when he's coming back. I don't know. Come on, can we settle that right now? Because my concern is some of us walk out of service like looking in the sky for <laughs> the rest of the week. We're like, is it coming? Those clouds are big, right? <laughs> Launch more rockets into space, hit asteroids. <laughs> Peterson says there are tendencies within us and forces outside of us that relentlessly, re relentlessly reduce God to a checklist of explanations or a handbook of moral precepts, or economic arrangement, or political realities, or a pleasure boat. God is reduced to what can be measured, used, weighed, gathered, controlled, or felt. And then he goes on to say this, when we do this, I'm paraphrasing, when we do this, we miss who God is, the reality of who God is, and then he writes, when we do this, we devalue God and it strikes our lives in a way that's negative because the rights human life requires God. And when we reduce God to what we make him, we're worshiping an idol formed by our hands rather than a God who created all that we know. Isn't it interesting that even with our relationship with God, we can try to make an idol out of it? Because we take over the sovereignty of who he is by fashioning him the way that we want him to be.
So eschatology helps us in the book of Revelation. It's vital for us to, to come to an understanding, a better understanding of who God is. Number two, everybody shout number two. The work of Revelation is pastoral, helping us live for God. Let's go back to our scripture. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. It's interesting. Peter says, while you're waiting, live for Jesus. Come on, let's say that one more time. While you're waiting, live for Jesus. Have you ever wondered, like, what am I supposed to do while I wait? Live for Jesus. Okay? This is not a time, church, for us to be standing in line waiting for Jesus with our heads down at our phones. This is a time to be getting on with it, to be engaging in the great plan and the great purpose that God has for us. There's still one more person who needs to hear Jesus. There's still one thing that needs to be built in the marketplace. There's still one thing that needs to be done. Come on, somebody, there's stuff to do while we wait. I want to give myself to action while I wait. I don't want to be standing around like, ah! See, Revelation helps us understand that there is a way that we should live in light of eternity. I love the beginning of Luke, or excuse me, the end of Luke, transferring into Acts, and we see this moment where Jesus ascends into heaven, and the Bible tells us that the, the disciples are standing around just looking. And paraphrasing the moment, an angel appears, and he's like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> like, get on with it. And right after that, we see the baptism in the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter two, Pentecost, and the church takes off. I'm fascinated, this is for the believers in the house today, I'm fascinated that we pray for revival and stand in the same place. Just praying for revival. He's like, I'm waiting for you to move. (laughs) Praying for revival. He's like, Move. (laughs) We cannot divorce the details of our lives from the destiny of eternity. I love what Dr. Peter Kreeft, professor, theologian, and philosopher says. He says that there is no final end. There is no purpose for doing anything. What does he mean by that? The significant truth right here. Ends bring meaning. Ends bring meaning. I told this to the church a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks back, that when I stand in funeral services and have the, the opportunity to preside over them, they're some of the most meaningful moments that I get to be a part of as a pastor. Like weddings are a party, right? And it's all about the bride. <laughs> right. right? Come on, somebody, you know what I'm talking about. And then brides, it's really funny to watch brides because they're like, oh, I'll try to add Jesus in here, but this is really about me today, so. <laughs> right? So like, can you talk a little bit about 1 Corinthians 13? <laughs> so, but then we're gonna kiss. And so, so how many of you agree with me? Beginnings, beginnings can start all kinds of different ways and still have a resolve. We can have rough beginnings and, and it works itself out, right? But we can, have, we, have horror, like we can have beautiful beginnings and it gets rough. But endings bring significance. Because you've heard this before, it doesn't matter how you begin, it matters how you end. Yeah. Yeah. Endings bring 
significance. And it's amazing what happens when I sit in these, stand in these funerals and, and listen to stories. And even in the most catastrophic of situations, the meaning that's brought in these closing arguments, if you will. Because in bring meaning. We are to live our life in a certain way on this side of heaven. See, Peter's plea and John's plea both carry the call to live our lives in light of eternity. The truth is, is that there's weight and responsibility that is connected to each of our lives. Our marriages matter in the light of eternity. Our parenting matters in the light of eternity. Our singleness matters in the light of eternity. How we conduct ourselves in this world matters in light of eternity. Our faith matters in light of eternity. Our speech matters in light of eternity. What we give our eyes to matters in the light of eternity. Where we spend our time matters in the light of eternity. What we do with our money matters in the light of eternity. Our life, my life, your life that matters in the light of eternity. So the pastor of this church is one of the great joys of my life outside of being the father in my house and the husband to my wife. I care deeply for the people of this church. I look at what we've walked through over the past few years and what I know we will walk through in the coming years. And I know that what we do and how we do it will matter. Come on, church. What we do and how we do it will matter. But it matters not in light of this light and momentary affliction, as Paul the Apostle would write. It matters in light of the glorious eternity that waits for us as the line is drawn between good and evil and our King Jesus returns. It matters. Come on, someone shout, it matters. It matters. It matters. Number three, the last one. Everybody shout, number three. The work of revelation is poetic, helping us see the majesty and the greatness of God. The work of revelation is poetic, helping us see the majesty and the greatness of God. Majesty and greatness. Terms we've lost in our generation. I don't know about you, but if I could lament from a personal level for just a second, I think music's gotten worse. Not even from a moral perspective. It's just gotten worse. Come on, how many know I'm talking about? It's overproduced. Some of you can get mad at me right now. This is not, I'm not, I'm way far away from the Bible right now. This is just Jason's opinion. (laughs) Way far away from the Bible right now. Like I was a part of the days when rock bands actually played their own music and their own instruments, where they labored to write their own songs. Art's gotten computer generated. And so we've lost the faculties of our hands. We've lost getting dirty in the paint. Architectures become uniform and sterile. And so we build as high as we can and as wide as we can and as fast as we can. Gone are the days of beautiful cathedrals and stained glass. And I'm not saying that from a religious perspective. I'm talking about the beauty of those things. And the more that our culture progresses and the more technological we become, we have to reorient what beauty is. That's why I love this church. I look around at a sea of faces in all of our, in all of our services and I see the beauty and the majesty of what God is connecting here, this tapestry of humanity that's finding itself in this place. From every background and every circumstance and every color, there's beauty happening if we'll just see it. 
We've lost the transcendent. But the work of Revelation is poetic. It's helping us see the majesty and the greatness of God because some of us still walk outside of these doors and see these mountains and walk to our car to get on Instagram. Revelation chapter one, verses four to eight. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and it is to come. From the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. And he made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> and then he says, look, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. The one who is, who was, and is to come. The Almighty. to be caught up in his majesty and his greatness. Poet means maker. And John as a poet works to help us actualize the eternal. Dr. Kreff would put it this way, he says to help us associate with the eternal. And then he would go on to say this, when you lose the transcendent, you lose the object of transcendence as well. Jesus. This series is going to help us know God more, live for God more, and experience God more. And my hope is that each of us will be more because of it. And I close with this illustration. I remember when my first son was born. It's my only son, actually, so. <laughs> we're in that hospital room. It was wild. Never experienced that before. And we had five years before we started trying for babies. And I remember Erica coming in, saying she's pregnant. I was excited, pumped. Some of you are parents, you know what I'm talking about. You'll feel it right now. And I'm good with emotive moment right now. Feel all the feels. Because it's important. Remember, I felt it. It was visceral and it was weighty and then all of a sudden there was this, this, this conflicting realities happening am I going to be a good dad I can't wait to be a dad and we prayed and then how many of you know the, the, the nine months is the most frustrating nine months because you're waiting for nine months but what do you do during those nine months as her stomach grows more and more and the anticipation rises and it's, it's growing in you. And then there's those moments, there's slight moments where you get to, to actualize what's happening when there's a kick of the baby's foot. Yeah. Just a kick. But the kick helps you know something's coming. Yeah. The, kill, the kick helps you realize that what you've, in, what you've been anticipating, it, it's coming. And the growth of that stomach, it, it, it's anticipation. And then labor starts, and it starts moving, and it's faster, and it's faster, and, and everything's 
getting shorter and shorter and the window is lessening because this, this boy is about to come, this boy is about to come and then you get to the hospital and it's chaos and it's all of, everything's going on around me and it's, and it's sterile and there's doctors and there's, there's wires and there's, there's blood and there's, there's nurses and there's doctors and there's stuff that's cumber, covering it up but I remember when my son came and I locked eyes with him for the first time And I saw this beautiful child and yet he was still messy and it didn't look right and it wasn't the way that I thought it was gonna all happen and it didn't pan out, but between all of that stuff happening around me and everything that he was covered with, I saw the beauty of my son. And this is the book of Revelation. Stuff that's covering it all and things that don't make sense to us. But John's desire as a poet was to help us see the beauty and the majesty of who God was. If we could just see through all of the stuff that covers it up. Church, we are in those moments where we get glimpses of heaven as we worship together in a service like this and we collectively get, it's a, it's a kick. Oh, come on, somebody, it's a kick. Heaven letting us know I'm getting closer. It's a kick letting us know that God is near. It's a kick. It's letting us know that God is faithful. It's a kick. It's just a kick. We got to see through it. Got to get past the beasts and the eyes and and the dragons and the eagles and and see our king. So my hope and my prayer for this closing series this year is we would gaze upon the beauty of the one who says, I was, I am, and I'm coming back. Take heart, dear child. Take heart, for the king has spoken. In Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes in this sacred moment. Jesus. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around right now. Some of us have just been introduced to this king that rides in the clouds. Maybe you haven't heard him this way before. Maybe you haven't experienced him like this before. But this king died not a king's death, a criminal's death. He died for you, he died for me. And there's a decision that we must make. And the decision is whether we will allow him to be Lord of our life and follow him as Lord of our life. So we're gonna pray that prayer today. It's a very important prayer. There's nothing really fancy in the words, but rather the heart from which these words come. And if you'd say, man, Jason, that's me. I want to say yes to Jesus. Would you pray this prayer with us today? And we're going to all do it together as loud as we can so we don't leave anybody out. But come on, would you repeat this after me? Everybody say, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now. And I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me, change me, and make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm gonna follow you all the days of my life. Thank you 
for the gift of salvation. I receive it today in Jesus' name.